A reading from Psalm 65, starting at verse 9. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with corn. They shout for joy and sing. And a second reading from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for feed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, saints. If you've got your Bibles, do open them, please, at Genesis chapter 1. And uh, for those who weren't here last week, we are starting a new series. Uh, look at, well, last week, we started a new series looking at God's relationship with creation and our responsibility to creation. And... Uh, I want to continue the thoughts that Charlie began last week, and I do encourage you to go online and to download that talk. It was just saturated with wonderful and inspiring thoughts uh, from God's Word, as well as some really powerful and troubling statistics. Shall we pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Lord, uh, some may feel that they know all about this and they're on top of it. Others, uh, their eyes may well be rolling and they think, oh, not this again. We look to you. We pray for your word. We pray for, for you to speak to us and deposit your truth to our minds, to our hearts, and then to turn that into action with our hands. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, despite Charlie and Anita's best efforts over the last 15 years, uh, it's been a bit of an uphill struggle to try and uh, encourage me to be more of a tree hugger. Uh, I confess, I, I don't know what it is, but something in me has somewhat resisted this. Uh, even my wonderful wife, and she's got a real commitment to this, sometimes I've thought she needed deliverance from OCD of recycling. And um, I'm only, you know, now beginning to see how important it is. But all these things, offsetting carbon emissions, I mean, what a sentence. Buying less, traveling less, 
non-GM foods, fair trade, organic foods, fork over knife. I mean, all of this stuff just makes me want to go and eat a Big Mac, I've got to be honest. And I know a thing or two about Big Macs. In 1966, the American historian, uh, uh, historian of science, Dr. Lynn White, said this. Christianity is to blame for the ecological crisis that threatens the world. Christianity, she says, is the most nature-exploiting religion that the world has ever seen. Well, I'm not sure that White is right on this. I don't think that it's Christianity per se that is responsible for this exploitation. But exploita exploitation there certainly has been. And that is driven by sin. That is driven by selfishness. And that is a mark of human nature. In the very important commentary and social analysis, the movie School of Rock, <laughs> Jack Black, who uh, is a school music teacher, there's a great scene there where he says how important rock music is. He says, because rock music is able to challenge the man. And then he has this great line, he says, the man ruined the ozone layer, and the man is burning down the Amazon, and he kidnapped Shamu the whale and put her in a chlorine tank. It's the man. And it's funny, but it's true. It is the man. It is humanity. And I believe that it's the responsibility of the church to challenge this and uh, to lead the way in offering an alternative lifestyle. But Dr. White is probably right, that the church often hasn't helped. And often bad theology in the church has undermined our understanding, our responsibility, and our commitment to creation care. There's often been an influence in the church of deism. Deism is or was uh, an 18th century theology, a philosophy that influenced the church after Newton. And basically, when it realized that the world was marked by various fixed laws, it came up with the idea that God's relationship to creation was really um, that he had sort of made it like a sort of clockwork machine, and then God had gone walkabout. And apart from the occasional sort of coming along and adding a bit of oil and a little bit of a tweak, that God didn't really have much to do with the world that he made. I did my graduate research on a theologian called Karl Barth, a brilliant theologian. And in particular, I wrote my thesis on his relationship, um, or, or Barth's understanding of God's relationship with nature. And the theologian Karl Barth was reacting to what was prevalent in the 19th century, romanticism, uh, which was almost sort of pantheism, a collapse and an over-identification of God with the world. And Karl Barth, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, he constructed a theology in which he basically said, God connects to the world like a tangent to a circle. That was one of his phrases. That in effect... There are no points of contact between God and creation except 
that particular, peculiar, and special revelation in Christ Jesus and the Word. And 20 years, he wrote that in about 1919, 20 years later, following the rise of Hitler, and again, looking to culture, um, uh, to see, seeing culture as a canvas for God's revelation, again, Bart wrote on this, this is what I wrote my thesis on, and he wrote a book simply called No, No, Nine, that God doesn't really have much to do with creation. And even in his old age, when he softened a bit, all he could say was that creation is a stage for the drama between God and humankind to take place. Wasn't enough on a bad day, deism. The other error that's often come into the church is a dualism, a division between spirit and matter, and the attribution of greater value to what is spiritual rather than material. Matter doesn't really matter. It was an error right in the early church, came from the Greeks, but the church latched onto it and misunderstood and misrepresented God's relation with creation. But it's been there, especially in the Protestant church. An emphasis on saving souls for heaven that ultimately leads to a devaluing of the body and of the earth. The talk of creating new heavens and a new earth leads, and this one going up in fire at the end, ultimately leads to a detachment from body, from the earth, and a failing to recognize, a disregarding what God has made. But Christianity rightly understood. The Bible rightly read will lead us to a real treasuring of this creation. At times I fear that Christians have been so otherworldly they've been uh, of little earthly good. Sometimes we've just been in our little enclaves like elves at Rivendell, having a great time, but all the while Sauron's rising, and they're there waiting wistfully to set sail from Middle-earth to the undying lands. This is not as it should be, and this is what we're thinking about this term. I've got three points, simple points, because I'm simple. First, my father is a farmer. Would you all say that? My father is a farmer. In John 15, in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is a farmer. It's often translated, my father is a gardener, or my father is a vine dresser, but there are alternative Greek words to describe those. The word that is actually used there in the Greek is farmer, and it's a mystery to me why the translators have not translated it as I think it should be translated. And as my work this week showed that I'm farmer. I'm from the West Country. You can say it like a pirate. In the Greek, it says geogros, geogros, ge, from which we get geography and geology and geophys, means the earth and the Ogros coming from ergo to work, a worker of the earth and a worker of that upon the earth, a farmer, one who husbands the soil and the crops and the animals upon it. My father is a farmer. And certainly that title connects with what we had read to us in the first revelation of God in Genesis chapter 1. 
the first thing we learn about God is that he exists. The second thing immediately thereafter we learn about God is that he creates. And the third thing that follows on about God that we learn is that he likes what he made. He looked at it every day and said that, he took a step back and went, I really like that. God exists, God creates, and God approves. He delights in what he made. Professor Norman Wurzbach, I think that's how you pronounce it. My apologies if you happen to be a friend of his. At Duke Divinity School, he said, God loves soil. God loves it. God was the first to have green fingers, or more biblically, green lips, because he spoke creation into being. And the whole trinity are engaged in creation. It's what we declare in our creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then we affirm of the Holy Spirit that he's the Lord, the giver of life. And we say of Jesus that all things were made by him and for him in Colossians. You won't really understand God and you won't really understand the work of the Spirit and you won't understand Christ Jesus if you don't understand their relation to creation, their value, that the value that they hold in creation, that intimate interweaving with it. Having thought my father is a farmer and reflected on that in the Greek, I Googled it. Thank God, what do we do for sermon illustrations before Google? And I typed in God is a farmer and I came up with this from Professor Richard Borkham. Anyone who's a theologian here will know that that's a heavyweight. And he says this, God is a farmer. The Bible often portrays God doing the work of a farmer. He plants orchards and vineyards. He irrigates and prunes. He sows grain. He waters it. He reaps abundant harvests. Sometimes he's disappointed. He waits for the fruit, but it doesn't come. And he removes the fig tree and he plants another. The Bible is bursting with agricultural imagery. My father is a farmer. And that is depicted in that wonderful psalm that Tim read to us, Psalm 65. You care for the land and you water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. You drench its furrows. You level its ridges. Work in the land. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty. The carts, the wagons overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. This is God's good work, and he loves it. It's what he does. He's behind it. God is a farmer, and he loves creatures, and he loves crops, and he loves nature, and it's made by him, and it delights him, and it's for the pleasure and glory of Christ. And therefore, this is a strong statement, if we would negate the creation that he loves, that comes by him, that's designed by him, that's sustained by his spirit, and is there ultimately to the glory of Christ, we lean towards blasphemy. These are serious theological issues. When I'm being encouraged, 
you know, to offset my flight to Europe by adding an extra 10 quid or something. I can't, I can't quite see the point. But if you say, if you abuse creation, then you find yourself on the wrong side of God. Then you're acting in a way that God disapproves. Then you get my attention. Because I want to delight God, not disappoint God. And if we use and abuse and manipulate and exploit nature... We find ourselves bringing displeasure to God because this is something that he made and he loves. That's my first point. You might like to all say it. My father is a farmer. (laughs) Why is it that all pirates sound as if they're from the West Country? I'm sure they had some in the Northeast. But anyway, secondly, my forefathers were farmers. Let's all say that. My forefathers were farmers. (laughs) I've always had a strange but strong sense of delight that my people for many generations farmed in the West Country. And my dear grandmother used to say in her West Country accent, we owned everything from Shepton Mallet to Mark. Lost it all, I don't know where it went. But uh, (laughs) the very first thing we learn about Adam, our first forefather, is that he... Was that he existed in the image of God. The second thing we learn about our forefather, Adam, was about his relationship to creation, that he was a farmer. There's much debate in Scripture about what exactly it means to have been made in the image of God. It says it four times there in Genesis. And some people say it's to do with rationality, some to do with eternal spirit, some reciprocity between male and female. I don't know. They're all pretty good. But I think there in the context, there is a strong case to be made that to, to be made in the image of God is to be made a farmer. What are we about? The first instruction given that is accompanied with a blessing is to care for the creation that God has made. In 126, if you've got your Bible, Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make man, humankind, in our image, after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and said, be fruitful and increase in number." Adam and Eve, you procreate, recreate, and so on. And then fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature on the ground. The first thing we learn about God is that he exists. The second thing we learn is that he creates. The first thing we learn about Adam and Eve is that they exist in the image of God. The second thing we learn about them is that being in the image of God, they are to exercise this relationship to the creation God has made. Now, some balk at the terms that we find in Genesis. Some translations try to tone them down. It says, rule over the animals and subdue the earth. And it says, rule over the animals twice in 26 and in 28. And again, and from this is where that historian of science, uh, Lynn White, got this point. 
about us being exploitative. And looking at that verse, she says, as far as she's concerned, it is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper, uh, uh, for his proper ends. She says, built into that decree in the Judeo-Christian understanding is exploitation. Well, never get a scientist or a historian and an atheist to do your theology or your exegesis. Because that's not what the text says. That's not what the terms mean. The terms describing human dominion and rule over the animal kingdom in 26 and 28, raw door, is a term for a king ruling over a kingdom. It doesn't imply exploitation, just sovereignty, just authority. And of course, and I think that the writer of Genesis is making it clear, there is an ontological at the core of our being distinction between us and nature. Nature doesn't rule over us, we rule over it in God's image as God's vice regent. In the place of the divine, we rule over creation, but it's a a benevolent ruling. It says that we're to subdue the earth, verse 28. Again, this is a really tough term, a strong word, but I think in context it implies that nature resists control. But it's not one of oppression. It's not one of exploitation. Think of taming a garden. Think of taming a wild stallion. And that passage in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, has a parallel passage in 2, verse 15, that helps us understand the one in 1, 26 to 28. And it shows how humankind is to rule the animals and subdue nature. And it says in 2, verse 15... A parallel passage, let, it says, God took the man and and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to care for it, to keep it. The word subdue there doesn't sound like the word subdue that we would immediately think of, to tend and to keep. It's more like preservation and conservation and nurture. And then in 2 verse 20, yes, they're to rule over the animals. What does that look like? In 2 verse 20, the man, Adam, gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. That doesn't look like rape or abuse or exploitation of them, does it? In Jewish thought, naming is more than simply designating. Jewish thought it was always understood as the impartation of some core essence. And so when God says to Adam that he is to name the animals, God is involving Adam in that creation process. Creation is almost unfinished until they're named. It's not just giving them a category, a Latin term, so to speak, you know, designation. It's the impartation of something. And so Ed Ephraim Spicer in his commentary on Genesis says, names were regarded not only as labels, but also as symbols, keys, as it were, to the nature and essence of the giving being, of the living thing. So when Adam and Eve are given this responsibility, this office of naming the animals, that is reflecting their imago dei, their authority as the the vice regents exercising dominion in the place of the divine 
It's not oppressive. It's nurturing. The animals are coming into, I'm a horse. You know? Plato thought that, you know, in eternity were these perfect forms of horse. Well, where do they come from? Adam posited it. My father is a farmer. Our first forefather was a farmer. God is a farmer. Adam was a farmer, a name giver, naming the animals and sharing in that godly role of creating. I was amused to find this week that in the Geneva Bible notes, I have an original 1515 Geneva Bible classic, uh, but I didn't see it there, I saw it elsewhere. In uh, the Geneva Bible, the, the sort of main Protestant Calvinist text, it says that the point of God telling Adam and Eve to name the animals was, quote, this is the notes in the Bible, God would not have man idle. <laughs> now, you know, I am a bit of a hot prot, I am a bit of a Calvinist, but I really, that is wrong, you know. If you've got that in your, in your Geneva Bible, you can put a line through that puppy, because it's just not true. <laughs> it's just, that's just like, you know, that, some early false Protestant work ethic. Tending creation was not to keep Adam and Eve busy. It was to step into their identity as divine image bearers. God didn't create the universe. He didn't create the cosmos. He didn't create this earth because he wanted to be busy and he was bored. It was a reflection of his being. And he passes on something of that to us. God is a farmer and our forefather was a farmer. And then thirdly, we've got to think like a farmer. Many of the parables of Jesus and the metaphors employed in the Old Testament and even uh, many of the laws that are given through Moses to the people of Israel for living in the land rely on understanding this heart and mind of God as farmer and Adam and Eve made and humankind made in the image of God exercising that role. But in our increasingly urbanized and industrialized, fragmented, uh, individualized society, it's caused us to lose touch with creature and crop. It's said that at least once in a person's life, they're going to need a, a lawyer. At least once they'll need a policeman. At least once they'll... Uh, need an undertaker, at least once they'll need a surgeon, at least once they'll need a vicar, but three times a day they need a farmer. Three times a day. Many of us have lost touch. Every time we sit down and eat, someone made it. Someone worked the land and worked what was on the land to give us that food, unless you're eating tofu. Uh, <laughs> Incidentally, I used to be a butcher, but and uh, in the meat, uh, but I was offered a job uh, assisting running a tofu plant, which I didn't take. Anyway, <laughs> I I like tofu a lot. I'm not suggesting we all become farmers. I'm not, and it's impossible to return to an agrarian culture. We can't do that in order that we might know ourselves and find the Adam in us and understand God and all of that. But some might. I read a book a little while ago on the, 
the, the German Reformation under Luther, and Luther's main tutor and one of his long-term friends, he fell out with him in the end, Luther got a bit grumpy, but the father of the Reformation called Karlstadt, and following the Reformation, he was a professor uh, in Wittenberg, following the Reformation, he handed back his three doctorates, three, he gave them back, and he became a farmer. And it's very interesting in Lyndall Roper's book, when she talks about it, she says he was a rubbish farmer, <laughs> didn't do very well, and really made a pig's ear of, of, of it or not. But, so, some people, you've got to stay in the university. Don't just go and, you know, get a small holding and try and live by it. But some may be called to that. Maybe they are. Prophetically, I was thinking this afternoon about George Herbert, who'd been part of the court of the king, grown up a noble, and then he took holy orders and felt called to just go to the country and there just pray and be at one with creation. He wrote the most wonderful poetry. We still quote a man of God. I'm not idealizing farming. It's often demanding and often financially difficult. And being a farmer certainly does not equate with knowing God. I used to go to some of the uh, young farmers' parties. It really doesn't. And being a farmer does not necessarily mean that you love crop and creature. Not all of them do, although many do. But if God is a farmer, and if our first forefather was ordained as a farmer, we need to think like farmers. We need to care for crop and creature for their destiny. It's our destiny and it's our duty. Even in the business world, there's a whole new concept, some of you will be aware of, called thinking like a farmer. Farmers live in partnership, creation and crop. They live compassionately. They live in hope. They work hard. They know you can't reap what you haven't sown. They plan, they innovate, they diversify, and they know that you can't exploit without replenishing. They know that their land needs rest. The American poet Wendell Berry says, good farmers, good farmers, who take seriously their duties of stewards of creation and of their land's inheritors, contribute to the welfare of society in more ways than society usually acknowledges. These farmers produce valuable goods, of course, but they conserve the soil, they conserve the water, they conserve wildlife, they conserve open space, they conserve scenery. You've got to think like a farmer. One farmer described himself as a dispenser of the mysteries of God. I listened to a, a, a program the other day on Radio 4, and a, it was a vet, and he was just talking about the foot and mouth disease and, and crisis in this land, and he was just saying how traumatized he was by having to put down some of these herds, and, and he said, just seeing these farmers weep. Never forget it. And you know, there's an amazing verse in Amos chapter 5 and verse 19. You remember Amos the prophet. At the beginning, Amos says, I am not a prophet, nor a prophet's son. Amos says he's a farmer and a shepherd. A farmer and a shepherd. And in chapter 5 and verse 19... Amos says, the land has been ravaged by injustice. And the land, one of the consequences of the sin of the people of Israel, in the land of Israel, is that the very land suffers. 
and God, uh, and Amos says, call for the farmers to weep. Call for the farmers to weep. They know, they see, they're connected, they're the first to feel the pinch and to understand the overflow of human greed and the rejection of God and, and man's self-willing. They feel it. We need to call for the farmers to weep. We've got to think like a farmer. I need to finish. Pope Francis said two weeks ago, to commit a crime against the natural world is a sin against ourselves and a sin against God. And I would add a sin against our neighbor. Like I said, this is not some, uh, uh, something I've, I've never even taught on this before. It's not something that's been writ large in my mind, my thinking, and my understanding. But I do remember when Peter Harris, who founded Arosha, came and stood on this platform and he was throwing out all these statistics and I just, you know, I was sort of boggled. I failed my maths O level. I just didn't really, you know, numbers, numbers. It, I can't quite get it. But then he said, the bottom line is this, that the people who suffer the most as a result of your failure to honor creation, honor the land, the people who suffer the most are the people who have the least. They are the poorest. And this is a bit Janet and John book one, understanding of what he was saying, but he was basically presented this argument where he said that if we uh, uh, abuse creation, predicated upon our consumption here in the West, it drives elsewhere land conversion and deforestation, then that exacerbates the depletion of the ozone layer and that leads to climate change and that leads to a warmer planet and that means that crops die and that means that soil loses its nutrients and that means that the animals can't, haven't got grass to feed off and the poorest are the ones to feel the pinch first. And whole delicate ecosystems begin to suffer and species die away. The warmer planet brings an expansion of the oceans. This was the point that really got me. The warmer planet brings an expansion of the oceans. And that, the warmer planet melting land-based ice and glacier, the, the, the waters are rising. But it's always the poorest who live at the lowest. It's the poorest who live at the lowest. And 200 million people live within one meter of the sea level and farm there. And so our greed becomes their desperate need if we're not careful. I was moved by that. What did I do about it? Nothing. I thought it was a good point. But I'm hoping that through this series, God is going to help me to understand more. Something of his nature something of human nature made in God's image, something of our responsibility. Tolkien, at the end of Lord of the Rings, has a poignant chapter called The Scouring of the Shire. Do you remember that? It's not in the movie, and it's not on the T-shirt, but it's in the book. The Do you remember that, anyone? And the hobbits return from the great wars only to find that the rangers who guarded the lands had gone to war and not come back. And ruffians have come to the land. And they're led by Saruman, who's now called Sharky. And they've ravaged and ruined the Shire. And two things stood out to me 
in that. The first was that the crops of tobacco have withered. They've got no more tobacco to smoke. The farmers can't farm. They're not being allowed to. And the second was that they beat up and imprisoned old farmer Tom Cotton. Tolkien understood a thing or two, allegorically. God is a farmer, and our first forefather was a farmer, and we need to think more.